Our reading this morning will be from Nehemiah chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 5. That is Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews, what do these feeble Jews, will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a, in a day? Will they receive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head, and give them for a prey in the land of captivity. And they cover not their iniquity, and let and cover not their iniquity, and let their sin let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. I am so happy to be back with the brethren here at White Oak. I apologize for the quality and clarity of my voice. I I just returned from where I believe is the pollen capital of the world. It was terrible. I've been fighting this off for more than a week, and I apologize that it seems to uh, be getting me on my return home. But I'm happy to be with you, and even Sister Pat told me, she said, I can't believe I'm saying this, but we missed you. I said, boy, now that is a compliment. That is a compliment, and I appreciate that too. It's always nice to be missed, and it's always wonderful to come back and be with those who you love. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king in the Persian palace. His work is closely associated with his contemporary, Ezra. Of course, Ezra was a priest who brought spiritual revival back to the people, and Nehemiah was the one who returned to Judah as governor, and he oversaw the reconstruction of the walls. He brought back uh, physical and and political reformation. Now, again, while Ezra brought back the religious and spiritual restoration to Judah, Nehemiah was mainly concerned with the material, particularly those walls that he helped to rebuild so that Israel, Jerusalem, could be protected and so proper worship to God could be made, and they could do it without worry of outside enemies. The purpose and appeal of Nehemiah, though, goes way beyond the building of those walls and the restoration of Jerusalem as a fortified city. That was absolutely necessary for him to do that, but the book goes beyond just simply building some walls. I think the message of the book is work, is prayer, reverence for God, humble obedience, and vigilancy. You have to be vigilant if you're going to be faithful to God. If we're going to be able to keep God's commandments, we have to be focused, don't we? We have to be determined to do that which God wants us to do because sometimes in this life, as we notice in the life of Nehemiah, it becomes very difficult. Sometimes it becomes very difficult, and a lot of those times it's because of choices we make 
But nonetheless, it becomes more difficult to be faithful, and so we have to be vigilant. We have to be determined. We have to be focused. I think those applications can be made to our salvation today. The things that Nehemiah taught, the things he uh, was an example to the people showing them, I think we can make application. If we can't, we don't need to be studying from the book of Nehemiah. As we look at this book, we're going to notice the person who studies through this book. It is divided into three sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 7, and that talks about rebuilding the wall. You move on to chapters 8 through 10, and and we learn about the consecration of the people being separated and becoming more faithful. And then, uh, chapters 11 through 13, we see the consolidation of the work, how they came together in a united front to accomplish the things that they accomplished. Now this morning, I want us to turn our attention toward the first division of the book, particularly chapter 4. Within the first division, we read how Artaxerxes authorized Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem to build the walls to be able to obtain the necessary materials to get that job done. We notice that Opposition to the work is discovered in this same division and how eventually the project was completed. This morning I want us to think about builders. I want us to consider builders. Now we have some builders in the audience. Building is a difficult job. But after all, aren't we all builders in the vein of Nehemiah? We are to construct and to build walls to separate us from the world. Not that we do not intermingle with people in the world and try to teach them the gospel, but we set up walls and we build walls to prevent the influence and the sins of the world from becoming a part of our lives. We want to build up a wall around the church, not that we will not allow people to come in, but that we maintain the purity of the church. God adds people to the church. People do not add others to the church. God does that and we are to open and allow the gospel message to reach everyone. Wasn't it Jesus who told the Pharisees that they were not interested in what he was saying and they would also shut the gates of heaven to anyone else who was interested. So when we talk about walls this morning, I want us to understand that our walls that we build are to protect ourselves from sin. It's to protect the church from sin and not remaining pure. And we are builders. And just like during the time of Nehemiah, there is and can be discouragement as we go about building. If you talk to a builder, I'm sure that they will tell you in this physical world that often the weather does not cooperate. They can't get their work done. It begins to pile up on them. And now they tend to be a little discouraged and worried that they're going to be able to get done what they need to get done. Same things happen in the spiritual realm. We're wall builders and sometimes we get discouraged. So as we study a portion of the life of Nehemiah, I think we can gain priceless insight into what to do when we come upon those times 
when we become discouraged when it comes to building inside God's church. The title of the sermon this morning is Truths Every Wall Builder Should Know. We're going to learn these from the text of Nehemiah. Now we read the first five verses. We're not going to read the chapter in its entirety, but we're going to use the whole chapter. And we're going to dig out from this chapter things or truths that every wall builder should know. And this first great truth that we're going to talk about this morning is you don't have to look for trouble. It knows where you are. Don't go looking for it. Have you ever heard the phrase, don't borrow trouble, we've got enough already around us? Absolutely. We've got enough problem in this life without going and borrowing trouble from the world, right? So our first point is, don't go looking for trouble, it knows where you are. We can have trouble in our lives and within the church from those people who are without, from influences outside of the church. When Nehemiah proposed to build the wall, he all of a sudden found out that Israel was facing some problems. They were facing problems from those outside the people. For the history of Israel, when the Samaritans came onto the scene, and how that happened was obviously... The Assyrians carried off northern Israel to Assyria into captivity, captivity, for the most part destroying that nation. It never did recover. Now parts of the northern kingdom came back and they migrated and they became a part of Judah. But here's what happens. <clears throat> the Assyrians took all of the, the people who they felt were profitable. Those people who knew how to do things. Those people who were smart. They had talents and abilities, and they carried them off to Assyria. They left everyone they felt like could not offer something of benefit to the nation of Assyria. And so in turn, they also sent some of their nobles, some of their own people, and they placed them in the northern kingdom, and they became residents there. As a result, they began to intermarry with the Jews who were left in Israel. And the result was the Samaritan people. The Jews looked at the Samaritans like they were half-breeds, like they were less than human, lower than a slave, and they would a lot rather be around a dog than a Samaritan. So we come to Nehemiah coming back. He's going to build the wall, and he runs into trouble from those outside of the Jewish people, the Samaritans. And the Samaritans begin to cause problems. Verse 2, they mock those feeble Jews, those weakling Jews. What are they going to build? What are they going to do? Now, mocking is not too bad, is it? We've all been mocked in some sense or the other for our faith. <clears throat> Excuse me. But that's not so bad. We can, we can usually walk through those things. But then Sam Ballard, he takes it a little further. He begins to mock their effort. He says, will they fortify themselves? Now he's mocking, okay? Are they going to build protection around them as if they could protect themselves? Are they going to sacrifice? Will they make an end 
in the day. Will they get this accomplished in one day? They are such great builders. They'll come out here and they'll build this huge wall and I bet they even get it finished in a day. Being sarcastic and mocking. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Are they going to go get what's left of those stones that are burned and in some way turn them back into stones? See, he's mocking them. Of course, we get to verse 3. Sanballat has a trusty sidekick. And he encourages Sanballat in this. And he says, well, even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Verse 3. They are such sorry builders that if they were actually able to build a wall, if something as tiny as a little fox would run up on it, the wall would just simply fall down. And so Nehemiah's having to endure this, and he's hearing that. Have you ever <clears throat> seen a situation where someone is mocking another and they're doing it just in earshot of that person they are mocking so they can also hear it? Well, that's what's going on with Israel. You've got these people trying to build this wall. You have Nehemiah leading this effort, and you have Sanballat over here and the other Samaritans mocking him in his ear. Have you ever noticed those who have no desire to follow God or those who have at one time been faithful and, and have fallen away seem to always be the first ones to attack the Christian? Because they don't understand, do they? Those who've never obeyed the gospel... I don't think they understand the lifestyle that Christ offers. So I guess that's understandable in a lot of ways. I don't think they can comprehend what the Christian believes or what the Christian lives. I don't think the Samaritans were able to comprehend the focused effort that Nehemiah had on rebuilding this wall. It meant everything to him. He went and saw the walls had been torn down and he wept over the fact that God's city was in such disarray because it meant something to him. Someone mocks the Christian, and do you know why we're Christians? Because Christ gave himself on the cross. He died a, an ugly, terrible death, a humiliating death, and that means something to us, doesn't it? Now all of a sudden it's personal. Now all of a sudden you're mocking something we'd give our very lives for, and that's exactly what's happening to Nehemiah. So he has all this trouble coming from the outside. People don't understand. The Samaritans didn't care. They didn't understand. They had their own religion. They hated the Jews. Paul boldly proclaimed this, 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. For the which cause I offer, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. The, the heathen, the non-Christian, the infidel, the non-believer, they don't understand that. What have they based their lives in themselves? What happens when this physical life is over? Self is not going to get the job done. And so they begin to mock. <clears throat> you don't have to look for trouble. Trouble knows where you are. It'll come from without and it can also come from within. 
Think about the church today. Nehemiah, like Nehemiah and his faithful, they faced opposition from their brethren also. And then we look at that and we say, I just can't believe that. I can't believe the brethren, fellow Jews, would cause a problem for Nehemiah. We understand this a little closer when we get over to Nehemiah 6, verses 15 through 19. The very tribe of Judah, that tribe through which the Christ would come, they were teaming up with Sanballat. They were causing problems from within. They were sending messages. They were giving information. In politics, the term is they were in bed with such and such. They had a close relationship, an immoral relationship. And they were harming God's people. Verse 10 of our passage. All along, they were showing themselves to be faithful to God. All along. Nehemiah thought he could depend on the people from Judah. Instead, they were deceptive and they were unfaithful. How discouraging is it when someone who is faithful and always had been faithful, someone in whom you you put your trust that they would remain that way, if you had to stand up and defend the faith, they'd stand right beside you and do it. They would teach the truth in love. But they wouldn't back down from that which is true. How discouraging is it when that person all of a sudden becomes weak, will not defend, will not stand up, all of a sudden they're just going along to get along. That is discouraging. How many elders and preachers have changed their stance on a long-held biblical doctrine because something in their lives changed? It has happened innumerable times. And that is sad. Paul warned about trouble that would arise from within the church. He gathered the Ephesian elders together, Acts chapter 20, He had been with them for three years. He told them, I'm not going to see your faces anymore. And then we get down to verse 27. And he says, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Everybody, I held nothing back. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God. That is the duty of an eldership. That is the duty of of the church's leadership to feed the flock of God with the whole counsel of God. Now, Paul's warning these Ephesian elders, talking about the church, which he hath purchased with his own blood. God purchased that church, the one in which we belong today, with his own blood. God, the Word, who became the Son, died on the cross so we could be members of this institution. Now continue, notice what he said. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. What's that tell us? That tells us that we better have a congregation of people who are strong no matter if an elder or a preacher has to move on and go somewhere else. That Just because that one person or those few people 
move on, the church will still stand strong. But sometimes problems come within. Didn't Paul warn Timothy? Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. Why? Because the time will come when they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They'll want to hear the things they want to hear and they'll want someone to come and scratch their ears and leave out the things they don't want to hear. That's trouble from within, isn't it? We do not need trouble and we certainly do not need it from within the Lord's church. That's 2 Timothy 4, 2-4. Every wall builder needs to know he doesn't have to go looking for trouble. It knows where you are. And here's the second truth. The best defense is a good offense. <clears throat> I remember back in 1985, I was just a young lad, but a big Tennessee football fan. That year, Tennessee went to the Sugar Bowl and beat Miami. That was one of the greatest days in the history of man, in my opinion. And that year, Tennessee's offense was rated the best offense in the country. Do you know what the second best offense in the country was? Tennessee's defense. They scored more touchdowns that year than a lot of the other Division I colleges did as a whole. Their defense did. Now, I have to go all the way back to 1985 to get something that good. But a good defense is the best offense. Nehemiah understood that. He understood that you had to have a good offense, and that was your best defense. You know what he taught to people? When trouble came... Nehemiah went on the offense. He took his people aside. He took control of the situation. And he began to lead them in the ways in which they needed to go. And he encouraged some very important attitudes and he developed some very important attitudes within those people. The first one was prayer. <clears throat> when we do things in this life, we need to be talking to God. We need to be praying to God. We need to thank Him when people's health improves. We've been praying for Catelyn and that little girl, Olivia. We're so thankful that God answered that prayer. We've been praying for a lot of people. Brother Foster's back with us. We're so thankful for that. Sister Wilma's feeling better. Sister Mary Kay's back with us. We're thankful for that. And we have to pray to God for other things, right? There are other people who are not doing as well. We need to pray to God for them. We, we are going to do something in our lives in some way. We need to talk to God about that. I'll tell you kind of a funny little story that happened to me as we were gone this week. <clears throat> we were coming back from North Carolina, and everybody was starving to death. Of course. So we decide, against my better judgment, this always happens to me, to go to the Waffle House. Brethren, don't go to the Waffle House. Or at least order it and just go pick it up. It never has been a vestige of cleanliness. Okay? No Waffle House. I like the food. Don't get me wrong. It's really good. So we sat down and we had a prayer. And you know what I prayed for? It's sincerity. I prayed for cleanliness of the cooking of the food. 
and that we wouldn't get food poisoning. I didn't want E. coli, I didn't want botulism, I didn't want any of those things. I just wanted to get some food. It was a bad situation. Nothing turned out right and we all left. I was afraid we were going to have to go to the hospital. But we survived. What's the point? That's a humorous anecdote about things in life. We need to pray to God. We go on a trip, we're traveling somewhere. Let's pray to God we get there safely. Let's allow His providence to help us. You don't have because you don't ask, James said. Right? Let's pray to God that our efforts at the church here will be productive. Listen, be praying for me that when I have Bible studies with someone, when I, when I speak with someone, I'll be able to reach that individual. I mentioned a while back, <clears throat> I believe I did anyway, that on, I don't guess I did, I haven't been here. On Thursday, I think it was Thursday, I had about an hour and 45 minute discussion with a denominational preacher on the phone. And it seemed like I might could make some headway there. He's down from uh, around the Dunlap Whitwell area. Pray for that. Keep me in your prayers as I do those things. Let's pray for each other that we'll remain faithful. Let's keep each other in our prayers. And that's what Nehemiah's first offense was, was prayer. And we read about that in the New Testament. Philippians 4, 6. Be careful for nothing. Pray to God. 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. And he's talking about that persecution that's about to come upon them. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Peter mentioned prayer. He mentioned sobriety as well. We need to be alert. We need to be alert. We need to be knowledgeable about the things that's happening, right? Nehemiah intended for his audience to be alert, verse 9. They had to be ready at all times, right? Satan is deceptive and he's crafty and we need to be on high alert, Hebrews 12.1, because he knows what our problems are. His first offense was prayer and then he moved on to preparation. We need to be prepared. Listen, nothing in life is going to be successful unless you prepare for it. You have to prepare. I have to prepare, right? And Nehemiah encouraged that attitude. When we look in verses 16 through 20 of chapter 4, those people had to be ready for work and they had to be ready for war all at the same time. In one hand, they held their swords. In the other, they built a wall. They had to be prepared. Because the wall wasn't built yet. And they needed to be able and ready to go to war. How caught off guard would one be if someone they knew to be sound and faithful all of a sudden told you they believed something that was a false doctrine that you knew was against the teachings of the Bible? Well, that would be, that'd catch you off guard, wouldn't it? How off guard would you be caught if I got up and as I was preaching to the congregation or for the congregation here and I said, all you have to do to be saved is have faith in God? How caught off guard would would we be? Every faithful man in the congregation would stand up and it would be stopped right then, wouldn't it? Of course it would be. It better better be. We understand the plan of salvation, don't we? Not just faith. We We should not be caught off guard. We need to be prepared for war and work. We understand. You have to have faith. Absolutely, John 8, 24. You have to repent, Acts 3, 19. You have to confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God, Acts 8, 37. 
and you have to be immersed in water so your sins can be washed away. Acts 22, 16. Nehemiah wanted his people to be prepared. But we need to be able to always give an answer, right? That's part of this preparation, 1 Peter 3, 15. Often a person may simply be, have been taught improperly, right? And they're willing and they're open. We read about Apollos. Acts 18, verses 24 through 26, he was zealous, he loved God, he'd been taught improperly. Aquila and Priscilla took him aside and they expounded to him the word of God more properly, more perfectly, and he became a Christian. Every builder should need, needs to know the truth. You don't have to look for trouble. It knows where you are. A good defense is a good offense. And... Some things are worth a fight. That's our third and last point. Just like in Nehemiah's day, verses 2 and verses 14 of our passage, our faith is worth a fight. If we're going to enter into the battle, and I'm not talking about opinion. I'm not talking about a scruple. I'm talking about the faith of God that was delivered once. Jude chapter 3. It is worth the fight. Stand up and defend the faith. Most people in the world, when they go to worship God, they do it the way they want to. Most people in the world, when they want to be saved by God, they want Him to save them the way they tell Him to save them. That's not the way God has things in mind. We need to stand up and defend that. Now, we need to do it in a loving way. We need to teach the truth in love. Many denominations engage in attempted worship that is neither... Uh, decent nor in order, is it? 1 Corinthians 14, 40. I was sitting at a funeral one time. I was asked to preach a funeral. Had a fellow sitting next to me. He was a denominational preacher. He leaned over to me and he said, I'm going to shout. He was hearing some things that made him want to shout. Now, they weren't scriptural things. They weren't things that pertained to Jesus. They were just simply emotional things. He said, I'm going to shout. I said, you might as well. Might as well shout, you've done everything else. Don't stop now, right? And so then I had to get up and preach a funeral that turned into a sermon because of everything that was said before I got up there. And that's not what we want, is it? We need to do things decently in order, and we need to protect the faith that was once delivered. Our faith is worth a fight. Our families are worth a fight, aren't they? Let's think about this. Nehemiah reminded the people building the walls, you're fighting for your families. You're fighting for your families. We don't get this wall built. The enemy's going to come in and your wives and your children, they're going to be killed at the hand of your enemies. You're fighting for your families. They're worth the fight, aren't they? The same is true today. If we do not stand up against Satan and those who support him, our families are in danger. You recall what Paul said. Uh, Ephesians 6 verse 4, he said, And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And that doesn't just apply to our children. It does this, in this immediate context it does. But we can help our families by example. Paul said that the Christian lady could convert her husband with the word of God and her lifestyle. She didn't have to continually nag and beat him about salvation. She believed what she believed. 
She was faithful to it. She was a good wife. And she could convert her husband by her chaste conversation. And so we need to be careful. We need to look at our families and we need to make sure that we're doing that which is right. Our faith is worth a fight. Our families are worth a fight. Our future is worth a fight. If Nehemiah didn't get the wall built, if those people didn't get in there and get busy, reach and get it and get that wall built, there was no future. There would be no temple worship in Jerusalem. The city would never be fortified. And you know what? how that would have affected us? There would have been no Messiah coming into the world. Nehemiah knew that. The future is worth a fight. <clears throat> Consider the many congregation of the Lord's people who turned away from the gospel. How many congregations out there have become unfaithful? What would have happened if the faithful few had stood up and said, no, this is incorrect, and then you've got the, the majority who don't care one way or the other, and you have a small minority of people who want to be unfaithful. What would have happened if someone had brought that to everybody's attention and got them on track? Well, not in every case, but some cases that congregation could have been saved. Our future is worth the fight. Paul so aptly stated, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation that I have succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day to take care of the future. Not tomorrow, it hasn't gotten here. Yesterday's gone, there really is just today. When tomorrow comes, it is now today, if it comes. Yesterday's gone. God expects all of us to be wall builders. And again, we need to understand what that means, right? Nehemiah was keeping the sin out. That's what we need a wall for. We're keeping the sin out. And if all wall builders stood up and got to work, imagine what the church universal could do. If all the wall builders got up and defended the truth and never backed down, just think how great the church universal could be. All Christians are commanded to be wall builders. But if we're going to be wall builders, we need to understand, let's not go looking for trouble. It knows where we are. Let's understand that a good offense is the best defense. And let's understand that the future is worth a fight. Some things are worth fighting for. If you've not built your wall correctly, you stopped building or you never started. We talked about the plan of salvation. Come as we stand and as we sing.